welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller, and as you know, each week I'm privileged to serve as your host and interviewer. Now, every week we carefully curate who it is we're going to feature on this week's episode. And by now, we're well into our 100-plus episode, two, two years in, and we have no shortage of authors, agents, publishers pitching their experts to us because of the strength and breadth now globally of this weekly podcast, webcast, and newsletter. And so typically each week our production team sits down and reviews the 15 or so inquiries that have come in and, and decide if they meet the stature of this podcast. And I say that with some humility because we've been pleased at the resonance it's had with you. And then sometimes I pick the interviewees independent of the group. And this is how today's interviewee came up. She didn't come to us. We actually came to her. Uh, every week I visit Barnes & Noble, pre-quarantine, of course. It's a ritual with my three sons. Stephanie and I have three boys, five, eight, and nine at the time of this taping. My oldest is soon to be 10. And each Saturday, we make an effort to take the convertible, drive over to Barnes & Noble, and everybody gets to pick out a book. My boys actually, I brainwashed them to think that Barnes & Noble is, in fact, the library. So as you know, we're big readers in our family. And a few weeks ago, I came across Rita McGrath's current book, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. I swooped it off the shelf. It was on the bestseller list, the recommended list, the new release list, kind of the trifecta of all business books. And I wasn't real familiar with Rita. I had heard of a previous book she wrote called The End of Competitive Advantage. And I sat down and I began to read the book. One of the reasons I picked the book up was because her forward was written by the, the late business mind Clayton Christensen, who many of you may know is a dear friend of our companies, was a member of our board. So I sat down intending to read Rita's book. I say intending because this is not a book you read, but rather this is a book you absorb. And I don't mean that to be hyperbole. I mean this is a book that as a business leader in any capacity, entrepreneur, upstart, Fortune 5000, you have a side hustle, whatever it is, this is a required, absorbed book, seeing around corners. Rita McGrath, welcome to On Leadership. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for finding me. That's my delight. Thank you, Barnes & Noble, for making sure the book was front and center because I loved the cover. I swept it up. One of the reasons why I also picked it was I've been privileged for the last 15-plus uh, year to be able to go to the World Business Forum. You're kind of an annual conclave in New York City. Our CEO very much believes in professional development. It's a good thing, given we're a performance improvement company. He funds our tuition to attend that every year. And I think 15-plus years ago, I saw Jack Welch, who recently passed as well, a friend of our CEOs as well. And one of the key points I remember from Jack Welch 15 years ago, when he talked about his key leadership competencies, was this idea of, he called it looking around corners. And it's a very similar concept, but it stuck, it stuck with me, right, around one of the key leadership contributions you have as you're humble, is not to have all the answers, not to be the genius in the room, but to be able to, as he called it, look around corners. And here you wrote this seminal book now called Seeing Around Corners. We're going to spend all of our time talking about your book today and leadership lessons learned. I wonder, Rita, first, if you take a few minutes and orient our viewers and listeners to your journey, your background, your areas of expertise, and why you came to write this book currently. Sure. So um, I've 
for a long time been on the faculty at Columbia Business School, uh, where I work mostly in our executive education area. So this would be courses for um, you know executives that are non-degree, typically short and chunky. And of course, at the moment, we're evaluating what that actually looks like in the years to come. Um, I joined Columbia after getting my PhD at the Wharton School. Uh, before that, I actually worked for city government. I was involved in digital transformation before we knew that was a thing, uh, working for the city of New York. Um, I grew up in Rochester, New York, uh, and moved to New York City to go to Barnard College in the late 70s. So that's kind of my personal history. Um, I'm married. I have two delightful grown-up children who are now successfully off the payroll. Go me. Uh, and, uh, I can't relate. Uh, I can't fathom. <laughs> I'm telling you, empty nesting is awesome. You know, you really should check it out. Well, <laughs> I'm a five-year-old, so come back in uh, 20 years, oh, right? <laughs> I'll catch up with you like in a couple of decades. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the work that I do is mostly at the intersection of strategy and innovation. And I think what's interesting about that is that, you know, when I first started in the field, strategy was something all the cool kids were doing. And it was all industry analysis, and you could analyze your way to an answer. And it was things like R&D intensity and relative market share and those kinds of metrics. And innovation, my God, those of us looking at innovation were sort of huddled in a corner for warmth, you know, because we were doing inside company studies, looking at what leaders did, looking at what innovators did. Um, and what's happened in the intervening years, and I think it really has to do with the subject of my previous book, The End of Competitive Advantage, is that as competitive advantages get short, innovation becomes um, uh, obligatory. It, it becomes necessary. And I think a lot of people who've never had to really deal with innovation before are now bumping it up against the reality that they have to get better at doing it because you can't count on an advantage lasting for a long time. Rita, out of respect to all of our guests, I do my best to read each interviewee's book cover to cover. Should they have a book? Not everyone has a book, of course but I've absorbed this book. And I'm gonna use that word intentionally the next 30 minutes because again, you may disagree, but I think everyone should buy your book, but I don't think it's a book you read. I think it's a book you absorb. And that's how I approached the book as soon as I got into it. There's about eight or 10 concepts I hope we can get through in the next 35 or so minutes. The first one is this idea of if a leader is going to be adept at seeing around corners, building a culture amongst his or her leaders of bringing the same to bear, they have to be aware of this idea called leader isolation, which in itself I think is intuitive, but would you riff a bit on this, how important it is to recognize how easy it is for leaders to become isolated, even when I think most of us would protest that we're not. Oh, yeah. I mean, the farther up up you go in an organization, the more the organization itself is incented to hide the truth from you. That's so right. there's a short story that I think brings this to life. So The Gap, you all know The Gap, the hoodie and sweatshirt and t-shirt yeah. people, um, made a vow in 2015 that they were going to try to give their retail workers more regular hours. And it wasn't going so well. And so the New York Times went and interviewed them about why is this so hard to give people regular hours? And there were two answers that won't come as a surprise to your readership, the first one anyway. So the first answer was, oh, corporate. You know, corporate decides Thursday, it's skinny jeans day and they tell us on Tuesday. And so we're all scrambling like crazy to get the skinny jeans to where they need to be for the national promotion. So corporate decisions that don't really reflect the reality on the ground. But the second reason I thought was fascinating and it was executive visits. One store manager said, oh, you know, I must have had everybody on double overtime getting the place ready for a visit by an executive. Now let that sink in, right? That store 
that you're in is not the store that CEO is seeing, right? I mean, the store the CEO in, is in probably has fresh light bulbs and a coat of paint oh, and the floor has been oh. polished and, you know, it looks beautiful. And so you're walking into a store thinking you're doing the right thing. And yet what you're seeing is a fantasy. Rita, when I read that part in the book, it reminded me of a visceral experience I had at a career prior to Franklin Covey. I've been privileged to be a member of this firm for almost 25 years. Prior to that, I had a great stint at the Disney Development Company, which was the real estate arm of the Walt Disney Company, the company that built the town of Celebration in, in Florida. And I remember once Michael Eisner, who was the CEO at the time, was coming for a site visit. He wanted to do some inspections. And uh, there was, at the time, uh, a division of the company called Disney Vacation Club, right? Disney's timeshare division. And what they do is they mock up kind of fake hotel rooms back, you know, in the wilderness, and they make sure that everything is set right. Well, we spent tens of thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours a week prior to Michael Eisner's visit, mulching the path, bringing lights in, clipping the bushes, making sure everything was clean, just so that Michael Eisner could get out of his SUV, walk 150 feet to the door. We had crews working around the night, clipping bushes that were barely in sight so that all the executives would look great in the eyes of Michael Eisner. At the time, I was you know, one of those people running around thinking that's what you do. But I think there's something to be said of what kind of culture was built where, you know, seven-figure CEOs were scrambling to make sure that the path was mulched, that the CEO was going to walk on to visit a fake hotel room. That's, that's a great story. And it, it beautifully illustrates this phenomenon. I have a friend who recently was made a CEO, and I said, yeah, what's it like? How's it going? He said, it is fantastic. My decisions are wiser. My jokes are funnier, and I even think I'm taller. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great concept to be um, horrified by. Uh, right. Another point in your book is this idea about level skipping. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to kind of riff on that for a moment, too. How important is it for leaders, and how do you see it? Um, any stories you'd share around where that's worked well in organizations, <laughs> level skipping? Sure. So if you think about it, hierarchy in many cases is the enemy of the truth. And the organization is going to coalesce around some vision of reality that may not be what's true. Um, so as a CEO, if you can get two, three, four, seven layers down in the organization, you have a much better chance of finding out what's really going on. Um, now this horrifies people who believe in hierarchy because of course, you know, you're, you're going around, so to speak, the leaders in place. But if you think about very effective CEOs, and I'll, I'll recall Lou Gerstner from the turnaround at IBM all those years ago, um, what he would do is he would convene meetings, he called a deep dive meeting. And in that deep dive meeting, he said, look, I want the people that are as close to the phenomenon as possible to be thinking with me. More recently, uh, General Stanley McChrystal wrote a fabulous book about this called Team of Teams. Yeah. And he had this daily call with his operations people. And he said, you know, if I have to make a decision, that's actually a failure of organization. The decisions should be made as close to the phenomenon as humanly possible. Rita, I'd like to read a passage out of the book and then have you expand on it, if you will. You tell a story about um, John Donahue, the CEO of eBay. I'm just going to read four or five sentences, if you will. Um, uh, Donahue regularly convened meetings with employees who were under 30, who often came in through acquisitions. The same thing in our organization as well. One of them, Jack Abraham, had an idea for a major redesign of the company's webpage. Donahue told him to figure out what resources he needed to make it happen. Abraham took the best five developers, 
out for drinks one night and convinced him to take a two-week trip to Australia the next day to work on a prototype. Donahue was blown away. Quote, had I asked a normal product team, he said, I would have gotten back hundreds of PowerPoint slides, a two-year time frame, and a budget of 40 million. Yet these guys went away, worked 24-7, and built a prototype. And here's the mic drop. These guys build. They do no PowerPoint. They just build. I think this should be a, you know, a wake-up call to every CEO, to every mid-level manager, to every director around the need for agility, right? The need for bias to action, the need for... Um, you know, checking your, checking your um, exaggerated need to impress and puffery and pomposity. Talk a bit about that. So, I mean, one of the things I would elaborate on that story with is uh, many really good companies have realized that PowerPoint is just kind of a, a smokescreen, right? Stall tactic, I mean, it's very right. easy yeah. to hide behind dancing balonies and yeah. flying stars and fades and all that stuff. Um, in fact, there's a lot of academic research that suggests PowerPoint actually diminishes the quality of conversations. Yes. Um, so something they do at Amazon, which I would love to see more companies adopt, is they spend the first 20 minutes of any major decision-making meeting reading a brief that's written out in a word processing document like Word. Um, and in that document, the person who's proposing an idea lays out their story, right? And the first 20 minutes of the meeting, everybody's completely silent as they read this brief, absorb the information, and then they proceed to have a discussion in an intelligent way. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have been through literally thousands of strategy presentations where I get to the end of this this 40-page deck, and I still don't know what the hell they were trying to talk about. <laughs> you know, So I think brevity, clarity, getting right to the point, but you know, spelling it out in words, telling the story is so much more valuable than you know an endless succession of PowerPoint slides. Couldn't agree more. I speak a lot for the company out keynoting, and I stopped using PowerPoint three years ago. I haven't created a PowerPoint slide in three or four years. In fact, as people come in to present to our CEO and the executive team, when I am coaching them, usually um, not because they asked for it, I'll usually call them up and say, can I give you some coaching, right? I, I speak Bob. Bob Whitman is our chairman. So let me tell you how to speak Bob. Do not spend three or four weeks or three or four hours or three or four minutes creating a PowerPoint presentation because Bob's not going to read it. He's going to be gracious. He's going to allow you to get, oh, I don't know, a slide and a half into your 30 slides, and he's going to stop you and move on his own agenda because he's running a global firm, right? And his time is tight, and it isn't because he's not gracious. He's not um, uh, a gentleman. He just needs to get to the points that he's most interested in so he can decide if this is where the company should spend their time, attention, and their money against something else. I think it's a great insight about um, the bias to action. You also share another superb example from Adobe that you call the kickbox idea. Would you, uh, would you share that? Oh, absolutely. So this wasn't my idea, but I think it's an admirable uh, attempt that they've made. So any employee at Adobe can uh, ask for a kickbox, which is a small red box. And inside the box are a set of instructions about how to bring an innovation forward. Uh, there's a notebook. There's specifically called Bad Ideas. <laughs> there's some post-it notes because, of course, you have to have post-it notes. There's a Starbucks card and a candy bar because innovation requires caffeine and sugar. But the most important thing in this box is a gift card with a $1,000 valuation. 
And as someone who wants to propose an idea, you don't have to get permission. You don't have to run it by a committee. Uh, you can spend that $1,000 on some kind of customer experiment any way you want. And so at about the point where Adobe had issued about a thousand of these, the CEO was asked, well, you know, why are you doing this? Are you just throwing money down a hole? And he said, well, no, if you think about it, right, I've spent, what, a million bucks. I mean, in the scale of a company like Adobe, that's not a whole lot of money. But think about it. You know, I've got a thousand people now who've been empowered to try something out, who've been exposed to what innovation means. And most importantly, don't think about it as uh, R&D spending. Think about it as training, right? I've now got a thousand more people who understand what the innovation process is, and that's priceless. So um, they, out of that thousand, um, he reported that about 23 had gone on to become blue boxes, which yeah. are bigger boxes, and they won't tell me what's in them, but I suppose that it would be the next generation of an idea. Rita, it's easy to read about that, but I have to think that the level of hubris in most organizations in the C-suite is not small, and that there's a lot of cultures that think you know, the idea needs to come out of the executive team and that other people wouldn't have the sophistication or the background or the fields of experience to be able to uh, bring ideas in. I I'm sure that's insulting to some listening and hearing today. I think it's quite piercingly accurate. What, mm. what, what advice, what wisdom, what counsel would you give to senior leaders to have them check their own hubris, if you will, their own arrogance? No one's gonna admit their own arrogance. We'll talk about that in a few moments when you share a different story about constant contact, mm -hmm. what advice would you give to the senior leaders of any company to have them challenge their paradigm around where their ideas come from in the organization? Well, I would use the example of a company that was founded by Eli Lilly. It's called Innocentive. And the way it works is it's an idea marketplace. And so people that have a problem, so let's say your company has a problem that's sort of technical in nature, and you're a seeker, so you're a problem seeker, and you post the problem and you post the price that getting a solution is worth to you. And uh, you, you, by using this platform, you get the IP rights, you get the ability to commercially use it. And then people call, so that's the seekers. And then people called the solvers, um, could be anybody you know, in the world who's a scientist or maybe a retired engineer or somebody, and they go on this site and they bid for the right to solve a problem. And if they solve the problem, they get the price the company's willing to pay and the company gets the solution to a thorny problem. Now, here's the interesting part. In about 90 plus percent of the solutions that that, that platform has identified as successful, the solution came out of a scientific area or an engineering area that was not the same as that which posed the problem. So an example would be, there was a company in oil and gas drilling who had a real problem with ice sludging up the supply chains that they had. And the solution came out of a guy in the food business who discovered this very interesting way of coating the materials inside the pipes with a certain kind of um, surfactant. Um, but you know, it came out of food, it didn't come out of oil and gas. So I think having the humility to say, maybe the solution to our issues comes out of an area that we hadn't been looking. Um, in addition to that, I say I would say that there's an overwhelming overweight among executives on industry expertise. Uh, you know, and I get this all the time. Oh, have you worked in our industry? Do you know our industry? Blah blah blah. Well, we make industries up. God did not come down and say, "Thou shalt be the oil and gas industry," or "Thou shalt be the education industry," or "Thou shalt be HR." You know, human beings make this up. And the dilemma today is that I really see industry boundaries blurring. And so if you're in that situation and you're sort of looking at the world through the lens of your industry, it's highly likely that that's gonna develop a blind spot. 
Rita, in a few minutes, I want to pivot to the role uh, that leaders play in innovation and seeing around corners. You have a couple more concepts that I want to expand on, and that is the idea there's no answers in the building. You kind of mm -hmm. give a call to action to leaders to actually get out and mm -hmm. talk. It's a, a novel, obvious, kind of duh concept, but I think there's a lot of safety in the C-suite around hunkering down and the group think that comes from that and the, the lack of risk. Uh, what have you experienced around the residents or the, or the um, reticence for senior leaders to get out and realize the answers aren't, in fact, in their office or on their floor or in their campus? Sure. Well, you know, this is actually something that a lot of writers, authors on management have pinpointed for, for decades now, going all the way back to In Search of Excellence, this whole notion that uh, management by walking around, you know, going and really observing. Um, more recently, we've seen things like Undercover Boss, right, where, where bosses actually go and experience their companies the way a low-level employee might. Um, and so you, you really have this um, need, I think, to see what's happening in reality. And, um, and I, you know, it can be uncomfortable, you know, I mean, spend some time in the call center, go talk to the people who are actually interacting with customers. And, you know, if you ask them, they will tell you what's really going on. So back to skipping levels, I, I have a friend CEO who uh, has actually a computer program. So he runs a company of about 25,000 people. And he has this computer program that just randomly selects about 20 people. Um, and he has a breakfast with them once a month. So wherever the, those people are in the world, that wherever they work, whatever they're doing, this computer program just randomly throws up their names. And it could be anybody from, you know, the lowest level assembly line worker all the way to the guy sitting next to him in the C-suite. And he has this two hour breakfast once, once every month with this assortment of people. And he does nothing more than just go around the table and say, you know, um, so what, what's going on? What do you see in your part of the world? And okay, it's not out of the building. It's bringing the outside actually into yeah. the building is what he's doing. But so interesting. And, and you know, if you show that you're willing to listen, people often will tell you things that are really critically important that you wouldn't hear through the normal course of communications. Back to Disney, the president of our division, his name was Todd Mansfield 25 years ago, did the exact same thing every month. Mm -hmm. His assistant picked, you know, a random eight or seven, seven or eight people. And we went to breakfast at an offsite hotel and did exactly that. It was quite intimidating being a 23-year-old, you know, junior person meeting with the divisional president. But I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it. Uh, you share another concept around the steering wheel. I'm going to read from the book, if you don't mind, a couple of sentences, and then you can expound. I quote you when you say, I'm fond of an analogy to driving. When you can see far ahead, you can adjust your trajectory with a small move of the steering wheel. But when you see only after the inflection point is upon you, it requires a big jerk of the steering wheel. Put another way, when you can see an obstacle far down the road, you need to make a very small adjustment with your steering wheel. But when the obstacle is suddenly in front of your car, you have to quickly and drastically turn the wheel in a big, big way. Talk a bit about the role that leaders play in anticipating seeing inflection points. Are there some things that you've learned in all of your consulting opportunities and research and writing, common mistakes that leaders make in not anticipating and seeing inflection points, some things that you can perhaps remind mm -hmm. senior leaders to do? So I think one of the misconceptions that a lot of the leaders I work with have is that a big change requires a massive response. So you'll hear like, double down, all hands on deck. We got to, you know, we got to march forward and see this thing. Um, 
And usually that's a mistake. Uh, you know, in the book, I talk about the BBC, which tried to sort of digitize everything all at once. And it was just a big disaster that cost them nearly 100 million pounds. Um, instead, what I think you want to be doing is really using what I call a discovery driven approach. And I think that's very relevant to any kind of high uncertainty situation where plan as far as you can see get to that point, look around and say, okay, what have we learned about our assumptions and how can we plan for the next step then? Um, and so it's that leadership pressure to continually build up a better understanding of what our assumptions are that I think is so vital to managing in an uncertain environment. It's usually a mistake to do a great big bet the company, all hands on deck kind of sudden sort of thing before you've really had a chance to do some learning. So in a weird way, the way to deal with massive change is incrementally. <laughs> Rita, last concept, and then we'll move into a couple of stories. Talk about this idea of checkpoints. What's a checkpoint? How is it important? And what are some practical steps that leaders can do to make sure that they're following this kind of checkpoint concept? Sure. So the idea of checkpoints really was born from a study that I did of many years ago of large corporate flops. So these were, you mentioned Disney, right? Euro Disney when it first came out. Right. Um, Bix uh, uh, perfume, uh, Revlon's Vital Radiance, you know, cosmetics designed for ladies of a certain age whom it turns out are not amused by being reminded of this at the cosmetics counter. Uh, and, 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 and. And what we found was a very common pattern. Untested assumptions taken as facts big bets, all at once funding, uh, big teams, uh, and so forth. And so what we realized, my colleague and I, um, was that these things which were highly uncertain were being planned as though we had facts. And we didn't really have facts. And so what we developed instead was a concept we call discovery-driven thinking or discovery-driven planning. And the idea behind discovery-driven planning is you want to go from A to B. And in human heads, we always think it's going to be this smooth journey. It never is. Instead, what it is, it's a series of, of moves, right, that go through um, uh, phases as you're getting to your goal. And what we realized was not happening in a lot of those big disasters was there was no opportunity for people to stop and do what we call a race analysis, which is, do we need to redirect? Do we need to accelerate? Should we just continue? Or maybe we should exit, right? And so a checkpoint is a moment in the evolution of a program or an initiative, which is a natural stopping place. You've learned a bunch of stuff, and now what you're gonna do is stop and ask the question, what assumptions have changed? What have we learned? Uh, you know, should we redirect, accelerate, continue, or should we exit? And I think one of the fears people have when they're doing something in under uncertainty is the, the fear of failure is so rampant and it causes so much dysfunction. Um, instead, think about it. Let's say you budgeted $2 million for a program. Your program manager gets $50,000 into the project, realizes at, at a checkpoint, wow, you know, we assumed behavior was going to be this. It ends up being that. Let's stop. Well, guess what? You've actually just saved your company $2 million minus the 50000 that you've already spent. Instead of the incentives in a typical corporation, which are continue, 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 because my job, my reputation, my, my PowerPoint deck has all said this is the way it's going to be. Instead, recognize under uncertainty, you're going to have a lot of things that don't work out the way that you expected them to. And that's okay. Rita, there's a great quote in the book, and I don't know that you attribute it. I'm sure you do somewhere. I don't recall. It said, and this, this should actually uh, haunt everyone watching and listening to today's discussion. Quote, fall in love with the problem, not with a particular solution. 
talk to that temptation and how leaders at all levels can remind themselves and resist being so obsessed with their own solution, which will become their legacy, right? Which will become their, you know, imprint on the organization. How do leaders constantly reorient themselves to being obsessed with the problem, less so with their own solution? So I think the the key here is to recognize that, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a space you want to have an impact in. Um, but to get to that space, there may be many, many, many paths. Um, in, so sciences, in sciences, we call that equifinality, which means there are many, many roads you can take that will get you to the same place. And I think so too with business problems. And you know, it's natural enough. I mean, business people got to positions of authority because they're good problem solvers. I mean, that, that's one of the attributes that, <laughs> that good leaders have. Um, and so I think it's, it's important to sort of take a breath and say, okay, um, here's the state the problem that I want to have, what are some paths I might want to take to get there, and what has to be true before that solution becomes viable. I was doing some research recently on um, ecosystems and how ecosystems mature, and was very intrigued to run across the story of the AT&T picture phone. So this thing was exhibited at Disney uh, in 1964, and it was a phone, right, that had a, a black and white screen and a picture, you know, and, 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 and regular audio phone. And you could actually see the person that you were talking to. Uh, but 1964, I mean, we didn't have broadband. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have any of the sort of technological infrastructure that we have today. And so this conversation we're having right now was exactly what the AT&T people envisioned, but the whole infrastructure, the whole ecosystem wasn't ready yet. And it would take decades before everything was in place that made genuine video calling, like we have FaceTime today, uh, uh, possible. So the instinct was right. The problem was right. Human beings would love to have a way of connecting electronically and see images of each other. That problem was right. But the various solutions that were tried up until the whole ecosystem was more mature were doomed. Rita, your book has dozens, if not a hundred, relevant, uber-relevant examples of different companies, not-for-profit, for-profit, higher education, Fortune 10, Fortune 5000. I think I loved the leadership chapter where you highlight kind of the journey of constant contact and the CEO and the learnings that she brought to your book. Would you just take the remainder of our time and kind of share, recreate for our listeners and viewers the insights around how important, how crucial, how vital leadership is when it comes to seeing around corners and kind of some lessons that you learned from her? Sure. So this is Gail Goodwin. Uh, she became the CEO of Constant Contact, you know, Constant Contact pre-revenue, pre, you know, very, very early on. Pre-funding, uh, pre-everything, right? Pre-everything, yeah. I mean, she wasn't the actual founder, but right. she was very, very close. And she was the CEO that took the company eventually to an IPO. Um, and she talks about the progress of this company. Now, so just so your viewers know, uh, so Constant Contact, con Constant Contact was one of the first um, email marketing uh, companies ever. Um, email was still in its infancy, and certainly small business owners really didn't understand the power of developing a network and reaching out to their customers on a regular basis. So that was their target market. And it was something like $14.99 a month to subscribe to this thing. And so the technology was pretty straightforward. It was 
a, a way for you to put together marketing messages and communicate to them with people using their email addresses. And what Gail talks about as the company evolved was she talks about, oh, mirages, you know, that, that every month, you know, we would run across um, something that's, um, you know, that we thought was going to be the answer. So one month it's partnerships and the next month it's, oh, you know, we're going to do um, multi-level in the next month. Sort of. But I think one of the really super interesting things about Gail's philosophy of leadership is the amount of time she spends on getting external input. So she belonged to a group of other CEOs that they they would hold each other accountable for, you know, you'd have to say, what were you going to do this month? And then they'd get together the next month and say, okay, how did that go? What did you do? So external feedback, but also internal feedback, you know, feedback from her people, feedback from her peers. And in her, her leadership teams, she put an enormous amount of emphasis on getting the team working collaboratively together. And she said, we would do these two retreats every year. We would really focus hard on getting alignment. And that was so simple. And she tells a story that to me kind of summarized her philosophy. And she said, well, you know, I'm impatient, right? And like many of us, she framed her impatience. Well, it's a weakness, but you know, it's really a virtue. My impatience keeps us moving and pushing and da, da, da. And she said, so I had developed this habit when people were presenting to me, if I thought I understood where they were going, I would do this, like speed up, speed up, get it right to me. And she said, and she hadn't even thought about it. And then one of her people came to her and said, you know, I am afraid to bring our most promising young people to present to you because that behavior, I mean, you can just feel it in your own, as you're watching me do it, right? You can almost feel the sort of sense of rejection, the sense of, you know, and, and, and Gail said it struck her like a rock because she said, these are the people I need to be talking to. Our young people, our bright people, and I'm actually being cut off from being able to hear from them because of this personal behavior. And so she said, you have to hold up the mirror and really be honest with yourself about the feedback that you're getting. And I think that's really core to her leadership philosophy. Rudy, I think your book is extraordinary. I mentioned as I, I opened that I didn't read it, I absorbed it, I'm, gonna, I'm going to have to read it again. I think this chapter, chapter eight around the role that leaders, leadership plays is exceptional from a guy who's been in the leadership business for 30 years. You, you illustrate a lot of what Franklin Covey has dedicated our entire existence to, helping build leaders as linchpins of culture. I want to read one paragraph, so indulge me here and have you maybe end on this. Uh, regarding Gail at Constant Contact, you write, within the Constant Contact management team, Gail, she went to great lengths to prompt the entire team to give serious feedback in terms of individual performance, team performance, and how well the team members related to one another. As she put it, quote, I had to be willing to constantly look at myself as the CEO, as the leader, and recognize that I was screwing up the team. If the team is dysfunctional, she said, as the CEO, it's you. It's because either you're not creating an environment where the team is forced to resolve their conflicts or you are not listening or one of your team members is not listening and you're not telling them that that's okay. One of your key responsibilities is making sure your team is a team. I think one of the many reasons I stay at Franklin Covey is because our chairman, Bob Whitman, who all of us have, you know, issues as a CEO we like and don't like. Bob's an exceptionally talented, uh, uh, trustworthy person. He's had an executive team that's been together for, gosh, better part of 10 years. And some might critique that, but the dynamic, the trust, the humility, the collaboration that happens up in his office every Monday from one to five, the kind of the do not miss meeting, I think without diminishing any other contribution from our thousands of employees. I've been in that office, you know, 
52 times a year for almost 10 years. I think it's one of our company's killer apps is the high trust and the, the, um, the lubrication, if you will, of the relationships on the executive teams. Speak to that, if you will. Absolutely. And um, I call this concept uh, deftness. Um, and in my, actually years ago, in my dissertation research, um, what I was able to do was draw a correlation between the degree of deftness on a team, which is things like we have the right people in the right roles, we get the information to the right places, we believe in the competence of those around us, we get feedback, you know, a series of questions like that. And I was able to actually correlate that to performance in developing new capabilities, statistically significantly. And so I'm a huge believer in the power of this team concept. And what's interesting is what it's not, right? Because it's not we all love each other. It's right. not we all get along. It's right. not, right. you know, that, that we want to go have beers together. It's that we, we have confidence in each other. We trust each other. There's psychological safety so we can speak openly. Um, and, you know, we work well. It doesn't mean we're best friends. And I think that's a, a, a thing people get confused about. They think, like, we all have to be chummy-chummy. And not not necessarily. And in fact, if you've got a diverse team and research suggests diverse teams outperform um, uh, homogenous ones when they're properly managed, um, if you have a diverse team, chances are you're going to have points of not necessarily being on the same page culturally or emotionally or interpersonally. And that's OK. And I think people forget that. I'd argue that after three decades of my own career, being in sales, sales leadership, chief marketing officer, now overthought leadership, that, you know, matched with or beyond investor relations or fundraising or strategy or vision that what the leader does, what she or he does with their senior leadership team is what the com company is going to do. In fact, you spend a lot of time writing about how important it is for leaders to be mindful of what they're focusing on, where they're spending their time, because with that comes that huge ripple effect. Send us off with that reminder that you know, kind of everyone's watching the senior leaders in terms of what you're doing, what you're saying, where you're focusing, and don't underestimate that, right? Absolutely. So two thoughts. Um, the first thought is you need to be mindful of symbolic fallout. And so what is a symbol? A symbol is something that has meaning beyond its inherent substance. And the higher up you get in an organization, the more every silly little thing that you do takes on meaning beyond your intentions. So you have to really think about that. And you can't opt out, right? You Human beings pick up cues from, from their leaders and they're always watching. It's like advanced Kremlinology. So two implications. First, be mindful of the symbolism and what it means to people. And the second is um, don't leave a void. You know, if you leave a void, if there's no information, people will make up something because right. human beings are hungry for stories. So you'd rather that story be the one you have in mind rather than leaving an empty space for people to come to their own conclusions. So that's one. Second thing is be mindful of your agenda. So I'll often get, you know, called in by companies like, oh, my God, innovation. And, you know, we, we, we want to get innovation going around here, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I'll say to them, OK, send me the agenda for the last, you know, three or four meetings where important people got together to talk about important stuff. And I'll, I'll go through the agenda with a little highlighter pen. And if I get to item like 17, where innovation's right there behind, you know, a material safety data sheet update, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, they're not paying attention. And honestly, if you are the leader and whatever it is you think is strategically important, it needs to be in position one, two, or three, every agenda, every meeting relentlessly. And I would leave you with that thought. Well, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that because that validates a lot of Franklin Covey because the CEO 
and our EVP of Innovation, Adam Merrill, I think it's probably the number one agenda on our CEO's mind every week is how is Franklin Covey innovating to serve our clients? And that's not a sales pitch for Franklin Covey. It's a true recap of, of where our CEO and our president's mind is every week. Rita, the book is a gift. Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Phenomenal leadership book. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. Send us off with, uh, what are you working on next? What's next in your world? Oh, well, um, I, I think probably the next book is going to be, um, you know, what does strategy mean in a world where inflection points seem to be coming at us more and more rapidly. So kind of the follow on to this book. So um, this book actually had its genesis in Andy Grove's work, Only the Paranoid Survive. And that was about being in an inflection point. And I wanted to look at what happens before you get to that point. And that's what Seeing Around Corners was about. But I think the next book's gonna be, okay, you're in an inflection point, what can you do? Well, we look forward to inviting you to come back and talk about that very book. Great, thanks. Rita, stay safe, stay healthy in the midst of the quarantine. Thank you for coming on today. I, I encourage everyone to not just buy, but to absorb seeing around Thank corners. You. Look forward to having you back. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks for joining us today. I, I know you enjoyed this, or hopefully you uh, uh, appreciated some of Rita's insights. And if you're not subscribing to uh, On Leadership, visit franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership button, subscribe. It's complimentary. Every week comes out via email. Includes this video both in an audio and video format, as well as a downloadable tool from Franklin Covey's vast leadership tool chest and a blog written by me. You also can access it on all your favorite podcast channels. Rank it, rate it, review it. We'd love to have you forward today's video or link to any of your family, friends, and colleagues and continue to be a member of the Franklin Covey community. Check us out at franklincovey.com, and we'll see you back here next week with a new guest.